0: National Security This Week, a weekly look at American national security issues. And now, your host, John Olson. Good morning, everyone, and welcome to National Security This Week. We get together here on KYMN Radio each Wednesday morning at 9 a.m. to discuss national security. We're joined by guests from our local area, from around Minnesota, and from across the nation to help us explore challenges in national security. If you have ideas for shows that you'd like us to cover, please contact... KYMN Radio. Last week we started a discussion on the U.S. intelligence community and our guest was David Sauer, a retired case officer with the CIA. Today we carry forward on that theme of intelligence with another expert in the field, but we also get to expand on our discussions into the area of crime fiction. Mystery and thriller author Carmen Amato is a retired CIA intelligence officer. She's a recipient of both the National Intelligence Award and the Career Intelligence Medal. Previously head of a U.S. national intelligence tradecraft school, she also headed an intelligence collection program with responsibility across the Western Hemisphere. Carmen draws on her counter-drug and espionage experiences to craft intrigue-filled crime fiction, notably the award-winning Detective Amelia Cruz Police Series. Originally from upstate New York, Carmen's experiences in Mexico and Central America launched her fiction career. She holds a BA cum laude in history and political science from Le Moine College and a master's in international relations from the University of Virginia, as well as certificates of completion from, and Carmen, you'll have to correct me if I say this wrong, Institut Catholique in Paris, France, and Harvard University's Kennedy School of Government. Carmen Amato's family tree includes a mayor, a Mensa genius, and the first homicide in the state of Connecticut perpetrated using an automatic weapon. The perpetrator was her great-grandfather, and he eluded a statewide manhunt after killing two people, one of whom was his wife. And in the spirit of crime thrillers, he was never brought to justice. Carmen Amato, welcome to National Security This Week.
1: John, thank you for inviting me on the show. Thanks to your listeners for sharing this time with me. Um, I have to say, I'm a big fan of the thrillers you co-write with David Bruins.
0: Appreciate that.
1: Well, you know, they are very authentic uh, and disturbing in in certain ways, Um, but well done. Uh, I I appreciate that. Looking forward to the next one.
0: All right. Uh, So for today, Carmen, what I'd like to do is take this in three parts. Uh, I'd like to discuss your career uh, background in our first segment, so your career at CIA. And then maybe we should shift over to a little discussion on uh, American national security challenges in uh, the Western Hemisphere and then finish off on, on the transition of your career path from the CIA to writing these, uh, these crime thrillers, if that's okay.
1: That sounds terrific.
0: All right, let's go ahead and get started. Uh, let's begin with your career path at CIA. And I like to ask this question of uh, people right out of the gate. You know What, what drew people to apply uh, for positions, and specifically for you, what drew you to apply to the Central Intelligence Agency?
1: Well, to answer that question, I have to take you back to a time when dinosaurs roamed the earth and I was a freshman in college. My freshman history professor assigned a book, The Social History of the Machine Gun by John Ellis. And keep in mind, I was definitely a small town girl, small Catholic high school graduate. And this book just presented ideas and made connections in a way that I had not encountered before. So it really, uh, you know, really impressed me. And I guess that uh, is when my interest in national security issues were really kindled. That interest grew. Uh, I took my junior year in France and attended lectures at the Sorbonne with Jean-Baptiste de Rosel. Now, he was a political scientist who literally wrote the book on Europe in the 20th century. Um, I had that book for years. It was about the size of a cinder block and weighed the same. (laughs) Now, my French was not great, I will admit, and perhaps I only caught one word in four. But I was very impressed with the way he could draw the complete and perfect outline of Europe on the chalkboard without once raising the chalk from the board. Mm. So, you know, you were holding your breath when he got to Italy and Greece, but he he really nailed it. Um, He really hooked me with that blackboard stunt. Uh, It's funny what you remember. But anyways, from there I went to grad school at the University of Virginia. The CIA recruiter came to campus. I had an interview. I applied. The rest is pretty much history. Um, I entered on duty the day after Reagan's second inauguration. Okay. Uh, So you remember, you know, big expansion of the intel community during the Reagan administration. Bill Bill Casey was still the director. Headquarters was a single building. They served Swedish meatballs in the cafeteria (laughs) once a week. And I still remember a colleague saying that her lunch was glutinous, but not unflavorful. (laughs)
0: So So the CIA cafeteria is a place where a lot of business gets done. I happen to know that for a fact.
1: (laughs) Uh, This is, but I would argue that the food is better at the National Security Agency's cafeteria. Okay.
0: All right. I haven't eaten there. I haven't eaten there. (laughs) So how much can you tell us about the positions you held at CIA during your career? Obviously, nothing classified, uh, but I suspect our listeners would, would really appreciate having a sense of the breadth and scope uh, of what you did while you were actively serving with CIA.
1: Uh, based on the strength of my master's thesis, which was about Somalia and its prospects for being a poor international partner, uh, I was hired out of grad school to be an all-source analyst at the CIA. All it right. was you know, a great introduction to the world of intelligence because you sat at the center of multiple streams of information had to make sense of it for decision-makers. From there, I moved on to be a media analyst on China, which was a fabulous primer for looking at the behavior of US media today. Um, But I will say the analytic career track, uh, I found rather confining. There were so many other cool things to do at the agency. So after seven years, I moved on to positions uh, that can be broadly described as adjacent to technical collection, including open source collection. I you know, didn't have an engineering background, so I was never going to be the person in the lab or adjusting the satellite dish, but I worked in that mission area. Um, In my most technical position, I did manage an overseas technical collection platform. Mm -hmm. I was the executive officer of the CIA's R&D office as it existed back then. Uh, In another position, I led a CIA evaluation team that partnered with the National Security Agency to evaluate certain content. The intel community needed to make Resource decisions, but it wanted those resource decisions based on hard fact. Yep. What content was actionable and usable? Uh, interestingly, this went down shortly before 9 11. Mm-hmm. If the team hadn't done our job, certain streams of information would not have existed on 9 11. Um, our warfighters wouldn't have had as much information as possible. We wouldn't have had as much information as we were. Uh, planning operation jawbreaker, which was the first agency team that went into Afghanistan. Mm -hmm. Um, I was also a member of the 2015 agency modernization task force, uh, which gives me a headache even to think about it now. So let's (laughs) not discuss that. Uh, But I will say my favorite position was as the general secretary of the 22 nation, international open source working group. I had to negotiate a multilateral agreement to formalize intelligence sharing. Um, Just to give you a little funny vignette, I'll never forget having to make my first big presentation to the group. We were at the annual conference, in a host country, in the auditorium, uh, you know, so it it really felt like I was facing the UN General Assembly. (laughs) And then they lost my slideshow. (laughs) So if you've ever had to face a huge auditorium of people for whom English is their second language, and you were really relying on those charts and graphs to carry your message, you'll know how I felt. Uh, Also, just to, you know, make it more exciting, my boss was there. Oh, okay. So not only did I have to convey certain complicated details, but now they needed something to look at, basically. Uh, luckily, I'm Italian, so I talk with my hands, and <laughs> everything went pretty well.
0: So I would say that, uh, just to hark back to a previous show that we did, uh, I had uh, Rear Admiral Michael Studeman on uh, a number of uh, weeks ago, and he's the Director of Intelligence for U.S. Indo-Pacific Command, and he talked a little bit about uh, that, uh, that multilateral approach where we, we bring in a lot of partner nations and have these in-depth discussions about intelligence analysis and even collection operations and whatnot. And one of the things we talked about is you, you can't surge trust in a crisis. You have to invest in the time and energy to build those partnerships. So the fact that you were building this partnership on the open source side uh, ahead of 9-11 was probably a really good thing that, that the CIA had done that. Just my personal opinion, would you, would you agree or, or am I wrong?
1: I think open source is is a bit of an unsung story for the intelligence community and working in that position and seeing what type of operations into their other mission areas was a real eye-opener. I would like to see more of that, frankly, in our intel community.
0: Well, we'll see. Hopefully, they're working on that right now. You and I are retired, so we can't impact it anymore. Uh,
1: that's
0: so, right. So, Carmen, you, 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 your background says you, you know sort of specialize a little bit in the Western Hemisphere in some of your uh, part of your career. Uh, that specialization in the Western Hemisphere, was that a conscious choice uh, to focus on the Western Hemisphere, or, or did you specialize because the CIA decided that's where they were going to put you that uh, for that particular tour or tours? A little of
1: both. As I told one senior manager during a career development talk, I like to build things and I like to fix things. And that turned out to be sort of the theme of my career, looking back at it. Uh, The Western Hemisphere appealed on a couple of levels. First, the culture was a good fit for me, Italian, Catholic. It was very easy to adjust to the rhythm of holidays and family dinners and traditions that are so important there. Uh, Second, frankly, you know, if you like to fix things, that's a good place. (laughs) There's a lot of things that need fixing. And and I can tell you the exact minute that mindset was brought home to me. I I was sitting at my desk in the office, uh, eating lunch, surfing around online, and I came across a video posted by the Blog Del Narco website. Now, for those who aren't familiar with this uh, site, it's a very uncensored site. It posts very graphic content of narco activities in Mexico, much of which is actually created, and we're talking cell phone videos, snapshots, It's actually created by the cartels and gangs themselves. It's not a promotional website, it's a look what we're up against uh, message that they are uh, carrying forth. So this particular video I'm looking at, just sitting at my desk with my sandwich, it shows a clearing in the woods. Video is grainy, but it shows a dead man in the foreground. He's wearing a pair of shorts, you don't uh, see exactly how he died, but it's very clear he is dead. There's another guy, fully dressed, and he's got an ax, and he's trying to chop off the dead guy's arm at the bicep. Yes, but either the ax is dull or the dead guy has bones like concrete because our woodsman is chopping and chopping and he is getting nowhere. Meanwhile, <laughs> off camera, male voices are hooting and hollering at the guy with the axe. They're yelling advice, questioning his strength, his machismo. Literally, my bite of sandwich fell out of my mouth onto the desk. It was such a visceral, shocking lesson in the way the, the cartels have dehumanized what they are doing. Yeah, uh, It just really uh stayed with me for a long time and it still still has um but going back to what they wants versus what an officer is interested in the agency is very flexible uh if you have transferable skills an understanding of how the intel community works how areas uh work together and in that, I mean analysis operations, S and T, digital innovation. You you can move across the uh, across the organization, uh, but I will say it's not common. Most folks stay in a single mission area for their entire career. You know, if you're training as a case officer, you you have invested quite a bit in that training. Right, right. Um, so most like to focus their careers. I think I was very lucky to have been able to work across. Three major mission areas, analysis operations in S&T, as well as in open source, uh, largely because I had those transferable skills, and I think also I'm easily bored. (laughs) (laughs) I'd like to move on.
0: (laughs) Uh, So you just described clearly a very impactful uh, event, having watched that video. Um, are there any other impactful events that you had while you were at, uh, at CIA that still stick with you today? Yeah, sort of a, a war stories uh, approach uh, for, from what you experienced?
1: I don't think anybody leaves a career in intelligence without having some big life lessons, uh, taking that with them. Uh, for me, it's been about maybe readiness – and resiliency, do you remember the Eisenhower chart? Uh, Important versus urgent Mm -hmm. and the four quadrants. Absolutely. So generally the pace is so fast in the the intel world, you can't always be in both urgent and important mode. You you burn out too fast. So in between the action, you have to do the important things to be ready for the urgent things. Uh, So one of those lessons was taught by one of my first branch chiefs, Jerry, who favored plaid sport coats and (laughs) ran around the office in his socks. But there were so many coups in East Africa and the South Pacific and East Asia that he kept a coup kit in the office. It was an actual box uh, with checklists, phone numbers and exemplar reports from previous coup events so that when things fell apart in your country and you were called into the office at O Dark Thirty, you weren't starting from scratch because you were now the central clearinghouse as an analyst for information and reporting for the Washington decision maker who was always going to be in urgent mode. Yeah. So the coup kit also included a blanket, uh, snacks, a lot of peanut butter and crackers. Uh, (laughs) And that was no joke because you could be stuck in the office for days.
0: Yeah, that's true.
1: So it, It was a great lesson for me even now, what are my checklists when I am publishing, when I am writing, um, you know, what are my lists of resources? Um, but I will say sometimes there is no amount of, of preparation. You have to be able to think on your feet. And I will share a funny little story. At one point I mixed business with pleasure traveling through the South Pacific and arrived in Fiji with nice. my scuba gear as well as a suitcase. Just because of the way the flights were, I arrived at one o'clock in the morning. Uh, and so there I was in the middle of Pacific with reservations for the hotel in the capital of Suva, which is about 20 miles away from the airport. Now, we all know Fiji because of the water in square bottles. But to backtrack a little, it was a former British colony, and it's the ideal climate for sugarcane. So the British imported farm workers from India to grow the sugarcane. But the land in Fiji is reserved for native-born Fijians, which meant that the Indian population could not own any of the land. As the Indian population grew, eventually an Indian prime minister was elected, was in a coup by an army officer. It returned the former prime minister to an interim status, but then there was a second coup when the army ringleader himself took power. So here I am with my scuba gear about two weeks after the second coup in the dark, et cetera. I get into a taxi. The driver is a very polite turbaned Indian gentleman And we set off and we're tooling along nicely. Airport has receded and we come to an army roadblock. (laughs) Single Fijian soldier, military uniform shirt tucked into a traditional Fijian Sulu kilt, sandals, assault rifle, flashlight, and a wooden barrier blocking the road. And, And I will digress here and just say that in my humble opinion, Fijian men are the most handsome on earth. (laughs) They're all about seven feet tall, they have a black mustache, muscular to the point of sculpture, uh, it's (laughs) fabulous. So the driver stops the vehicle in front of the barrier and commences to sweating and shaking. It's like he suddenly turns into soupy jello, doesn't say a word. The Fijian soldier comes up to the taxi Obviously, it's up to me. I roll down my window and hold out my American passport. And, and up close, he's so handsome as to be completely unnerving. <laughs> and even worse, he—you know he's looking in the window and he goes, hello. Like, like I'm the woman he has been waiting for all his life. And I'm completely nonplussed. So I say hello back. He steps away from the car, he's looking through my passport with his flashlight. There's nothing around, you know, pitch black. He's got a gun, my passport. The driver's not doing anything. I don't know what's gonna happen. After a couple of very long minutes, the soldier comes back, gives me back my passport. And he's, you know, once again, smiling in the window and he goes, goodbye. (laughs) <laughs> it's like right out of Casablanca. It's like, goodbye. And, and that was it. I mean, and there's just no way you can you can prepare for those types of situations.
0: So, Carmen, you clearly have the ability to tell a great story. So when we get into our discussion on your crime thrillers, uh, I'm looking forward to that part of our, our talk today. Uh, for our audience, uh, you're listening to KYMN Radio, AM 1080 and FM 95.1, broadcasting out of Northfield, Minnesota. This is National Security This Week, and I'm your host, John Olson. Our guest today is Carmen Amato, a retired intelligence officer with CIA, and now a noted author of Crime Thrillers. Uh, so, Carmen, let's, let's shift into a discussion on American national security challenges. Uh, you and I are both retired intelligence officers. The world we see today is much less stable and has more threats to the post-World War II established and, and relatively peaceful world order than we've seen in decades, frankly, your specialization in the Western Hemisphere during during your time at CIA. What what challenges does America face right now in the Western Hemisphere, from your perspective?
1: Well, uh, from my perspective, I would say the biggest issue is the erosion of civil authority in Mexico and Central America, and it's fueled by the U.S. appetite for drugs. Organized crime is basically leeching away and in some cases replacing civil authority. Politicians are easily bought. And even if they aren't, the organs of civil order are too small, too poorly paid and too poorly vetted to make a dent against organized crime. Um, Mexico just had the equivalent of midterm elections in June. 500 seats in the lower house of their federal Congress, 15 state governorships, and thousands of local leadership positions were up for grabs. And it was a massively violent election season. Uh, Reuters reported that 97 politicians were killed and almost a thousand were attacked, and most are at the local level. So if you can get rid of, if you are the cartel or a gang, um, if you can get rid of a mayoral candidate who is vowing to bring law and order and replace them with your preferred candidate who pockets a thousand dollars a month and pretty much turns a blind eye to whatever you want to do hey the the cost is minimal to that cartel uh i was really struck uh, by one report that said in Tijuana, someone threw a severed human head at a voting station on election day to dissuade people standing in line from voting. Uh, More plastic bags with body parts were found nearby. And that is a theme that you, you find if you are a regular reader of the news coming out of Mexico. The theme of bodies parts in plastic bags. Um, it, it, it's 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 shocking and it's also become rather ordinary and that's shocking too. You know
0: I have to I have to admit uh, I, I, I consider myself to be fairly well informed and I follow the news but I don't recall hearing much of any of that discussed in the American press about the challenges that the Mexicans went through during their election season. My goodness.
1: I I don't think that that's a particularly glamorous or clickbait type of reporting uh, for the U.S. It's just not that critical. Although, if you start looking at the number of missing persons in Mexico, it certainly is critical for the Mexican population. Uh, Something like 80,000 people have been Uh, have gone missing unaccounted for in the past 15 years Mm. that that's what a quarter of St. Paul yeah that's all of Murfreesboro Tennessee down the road from me Uh, and, and the country especially Mexico is littered with these mass grave sites yeah when they were looking for the remains of the 43 students who were the victims of a mass kidnapping back in September, 2014, and that's a crime that has been covered by the U.S. media. Mm -hmm. They found scores of unidentified bodies in these unmarked graves throughout the state of Guerrero, which is where Acapulco is, but not the bodies they were looking for. Uh, It's just... Uh, the Washington Post reported in December, and they did do some good reporting on this, uh, that two clandestine graves are discovered every day on average in Mexico. Oh.
0: So, Carmen, clearly uh, the drug cartels are have been a challenge in, throughout uh, Central and South America and certainly in Mexico, too. Uh, how do you see the threat from the drug cartels playing out right now? Is that a rising, a stable, or a declining trend? It sounds like it might be a rising trend. And and what is it that the cartels are doing to maximize their profits these days? Is it just drug smuggling or is it human trafficking? I mean, is it cybercrime? How do you see it playing out?
1: Well, when it comes to what the drug cartels are doing, in addition to drug smuggling, illicit drug smuggling. Um, They're being very imaginative, kidnapping and extortion, time honored uh, activities, express kidnappings where you grab somebody, make them uh, take them to an ATM machine, make them empty out their account as much as they can, maybe hold them for three or four days if they have a daily limit. And then let them go when they've exhausted uh, their utility. Uh, longer-term kidnappings, especially of industrialists or people with uh, quite a lot of, uh, of cash.
0: The kidnap for uh, ransom operations.
1: Kidnap for ransom. But then again, you have illegal logging, which is not a federal crime in Mexico. Mm. Um, and uh, you have pipeline tapping Mexico has a large network of above ground fuel pipelines, and tapping those for the gas is very profitable. <laughs> but I don't think anything is as profitable as fentanyl to the U.S. and human trafficking to the U.S. Those are the big money makers, I, that's in my opinion, right now. Yeah.
0: Uh, if we could, let's uh, let's take a quick look at uh, China's influence in in Central and South America. My guess is is that during your career at CIA, you saw the sort of that ever increasing Chinese involvement in the region, uh, and uh, I think China has continued to expand their influence in Central and South America. I mean, how, how do you see it playing out right now?
1: I would agree with you. Uh, I think China has a couple of reasons to be there. Uh, The first is diplomatic recognition. A lot of the Central American countries uh, stayed with Taiwan. Uh, But Beijing has been fuel uh, funding uh, infrastructure projects and been repaid by recognition. So in 2017, Panama, the Dominican Republic and El Salvador switched their diplomatic recognition to Beijing. Um, Surprisingly, Belize, Guatemala, Honduras, and Nicaragua still recognize Taiwan. Okay. The second reason uh, Beijing is in the area is strategic access. And here we're kind of narrowing the discussion to Panama. Um, (laughs) If your readers are interested in it, America's Quarterly has done some good research about Beijing's interest in Panama, uh, saying that beijing is funding 21 major infrastructure projects like ports telecommunications rapid trains and roads think about china stretching out from an economic base in panama panama is probably the most modern country in central america the expanding canal Right. Is a huge choke point. They use the U.S. dollar as a currency. Chinese shipping companies have become the second or third largest users of the canal. China's the primary source of products going through the Cologne free trade zone. And there's an, another hook there for China in that Panama has a very large ethnic Chinese population because of workers who came in the early part of the 20th century to build the Panama Canal. Mm. So that's that's a concern, you know, to think forward about China having that economic, big, powerful economic foothold in Central America.
0: Well, and I think uh, Panama specifically, uh, when, uh, when we signed the canal back over to Panama, uh... I, I'm pretty sure that the Chinese moved in immediately and took over as the managing entity for the Panama Canal Authority. And they have been doing a lot of investment into expanding the size of the Panama Canal, like like you were just talking about, with the ports and facilities. Uh, that is a huge economic boost uh, for China, because it allows them right now to get the, uh, the goods to market on the East Coast uh, through shipping, which is a heck of a lot more efficient than by train.
1: This is true, but... <laughs> Uh, interestingly, there, there could be a, a counterweight coming uh, from Japan. Mm. It's already been contracted to build a metro and monorail system in Panama, and Japan is proposing to build a five-kilometer tunnel underneath the Panama Canal. <laughs> now, the rail uh system in Panama, you know, just running uh, from coast to coast is hugely profitable. So if you could put a rail system under the Panama Canal, that would be uh, a tremendous economic boom. Hmm. Uh, So I'm, I'm interested in watching that, Um, you know, incidentally, a couple of years ago, a Chinese tycoon had plans to build a canal through Nicaragua
0: right right
1: uh, arrival, uh, and it was supposed to be completed by two thousand and nineteen yeah. and it's it's still in limbo
0: Let, let's hope that one does not go through because I think uh, introducing salt water into the freshwater lake probably does not bode well for <laughs> for that freshwater lake that they wanted to use in Nicaragua yeah. So for our audience, you're listening to KYMN radio AM ten eighty and FM ninety five point one. This is National Security This Week, and I'm your host, John Olson. Our guest today is Carmen Amato, a retired intelligence officer with CIA, and now a noted author of crime thrillers. And 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 Carmen, let's let's take this opportunity now to shift over to your writing career. You clearly had a great career with CIA, traveled the world, carried out some heart pounding assignments in support of American national security. And then you retired. (laughs) It's (laughs) tough to make that transition. Believe me, I get it. Uh, I did it myself a decade ago. Uh, What drew you to becoming an author and specifically to writing crime thrillers?
1: Well, I'd always loved to write into wordsmith. uh, But when we were in Mexico, I wanted to write about the country's extremely stratified society in Mexico the more spanish blood you have the higher you are on the social ladder it it surprised me just how rigid that class structure is how blatant it is mm. and how tolerated it is and i'll i'll give you a, another uh, example i was in the bank to cash a check written to me from the account of a nato ambassador i'm waiting in line it's a long line. Most of the others waiting there are workmen or maids. Uh, lots of paint-stained overalls, navy or gray maid uniforms, slow line, plenty of time to look around. So we're all waiting in an expensive suit, just, you know, the cover of GQ magazine, walks in. Instead of going to the end of the line, he cuts in about five people ahead of me. Nobody says a thing. Not the security guard not the man behind him nobody everybody pretends it didn't happen because you know he's at the top of the social ladder and he's entitled well i have been waiting and i want to say something but this isn't my country and this isn't my fight but i did make a loud sort of huffy noise this earned me a few looks like i was the problem so when i get to the bank teller she gives me one of those looks takes the check, and runs it through a little machine, which invalidates it with a lot of red ink. (laughs) She told me the check didn't match the signature that they have on file, blah, blah, blah. When I tried to protest, she gives me a shrug and says, come back in 15 minutes, which is the Mexican equivalent of get out of my face. (laughs) So I wanted to write about things like that, but I doubted anyone would read a nonfiction book about class and society in Mexico, by someone who wasn't an academic. Long story short, uh, the bank story found its way into my first novel, The Hidden Light of Mexico City, which was based on two questions. What would it look like if a cartel tried to buy Mexico's presidency? And what would it take to close the gap between these opposite ends of the social spectrum? So that's how I Got Started, right. uh, that, that book came out in 2012, but it was long listed for the Millennium Book Award in 2020, so it's still got legs. All right.
0: And so how do you develop ideas for your books? Is it Do you have like a moment of inspiration, or, or do you use your knowledge of how the world really works in a place like Mexico, and then layer in your primary character over the top of that, you know, true-to-life world of crime and corruption?
1: Uh, Can I borrow that phrase? You haven't uh, (laughs) trademarked it. Layer in my primary character over true life crime and corruption in a word, yes. (laughs) I followed up The Hidden Light of Mexico City with a mystery series featuring Emilia Cruz as the first female police detective in Acapulco. And that construct allows me to address uh, organized crime, drug cartels, Uh, official corruption and Mexico's tradition of machismo. So she's definitely got her hands full. Um, And Acapulco, while so many folks know it as a wonderful tourist destination and a beautiful bay and uh, beaches and parties, it's one of Mexico's hottest zones when it comes to drug violence. So most of the plots, in the so far eight full-length novels and dozen short reads are generally based on true events.
0: So, let's talk about that writing process. Uh, what kind of discipline do you exercise each day to write your books? I mean, uh, do you get up at like 4 o'clock in the morning before there's any other noise and start writing and write till noon, or what, how, do you, how do you work your writing process?
1: Uh, Well, I have three dogs. So I uh, write in between (laughs) romping around dinner and playing referee. But I don't have a, you know, get up uh, at the crack of dawn and and write feverishly. Um, I am much more inspired by the outline of sticky notes above my desk. Uh, So I generally write uh, for about four hours uh, in the middle of the day. And I'm interested in plucking off a a sticky note, getting it off the wall because I finished that that section and yeah, and I, I know it's not very you know I- inspirational no, no, or that's okay. imaginative
0: The hardest I'm part about a writing blogger. a yeah, the hardest part about writing a book is sitting down and and starting writing, right. <laughs>
1: It is, and I tend to do some longhand writing at night, and then in the morning uh, or midday, I'll type it in, edit what I did yesterday, and move on. Uh, the the one thing I have learned is to write in a linear fashion, start at the beginning and keep going till the end. When I wrote my first novel, I started in the middle. And, and it was just like swimming through molasses to figure out where I was going and, and how to to close it. Um, and when I'm writing fiction based on real life uh, events, um, I'm trying to sometimes solve that mystery. Uh, for example, in my latest book, Narco Noir, it was inspired by a story I read back. Uh, In 2013, and kept the copy of the Miami Herald's International Edition, it it was a front page story about a taxi driver who was shot simply because his taxi was the first in a line waiting for fares, and the killer was dispatched from a group trying to extort money from the taxi drivers, Hmm. completely random shooting, and that became the, the crux of narco-noir.
0: Uh, so, Carmen, we just have a couple of minutes left. Uh, what else should our listeners know about Central Intelligence Agency or your books? Uh, I'll, I'll give you the floor for a couple of minutes.
1: Well, when it comes to the agency, I'm not sure how many folks really know the history uh, of the organization, of, of the agency. There's a museum inside the headquarters building, and as I approach retirement, I made sure to walk through it and and take my time and really understand what I had been a part of. Um, there's there's really a a treasury of courage, I would say, in the historical collection in the library as well, uh, not merely of CIA memoirs but intelligence around the world. Um, some of these memoirs of World War II resistance fighters, like Norway's Max Manus, are really more heart pounding than any modern thriller. Uh, So as a writer, it it has inspired me to be authentic, to tell stories of characters tested by hard situations. Uh, The agency is a place where you find out that you can do hard things. Uh, things that test your creativity and ability to function under pressure from you know recruiting a human asset to creating a false identity like in the argo uh, tale Mm -hmm. to being tasked with finding an adversary like osama bin laden Uh, agency officers are always pushing the envelope Uh, i think people who read my books get that sense of telling stories about people who can do hard things and and live, you know, to do it again and again. Um, I think Detective Amelia Cruz is forced to deal with hard situations that are complex and intimidating, just like in the world of intelligence.
0: Yeah. So if I can ask uh, Carmen for for our audience members uh, on their behalf, if they're interested in buying your books, uh, where can they find them?
1: Uh, Well, if they'd like a sample before they buy, they can get the free Detective Amelia Cruz starter library at my website, CarmenAmano.net. The books, of course, are on Kindle, including the new box set of the first six Detective Amelia Cruz novels. Uh, You can get the paperbacks on Amazon, Barnes & Noble, Books a Million, etc. If you shop independent stores through bookshop.org, Please support my local store, Harper's Books in Lebanon, Tennessee. And the audiobooks are on Audible and other uh, audiobook platforms.
0: All right. Carmen Amato, thank you so much for joining us today on National Security This Week. This has been a great show. I appreciate it.
1: Thank you very much, John, for having me. I really enjoyed our conversation.
0: All right, everybody. That closes this week's edition of National Security This Week. We're on KYMN Radio, AM 1080 and FM 95.1. I'm your host, John Olson. Thank you for joining me today. I look forward to our show again at 9 a.m. next Wednesday morning. My guest will be Professor Federico Varese, and we're going to focus on transnational organized crime for the whole show, so make sure you join us. Carmen Amato may even want to listen live if she gets any inspiration from those discussions. <laughs> Have a fantastic finish to your week, everyone, and take care. You've been listening to National Security This Week, a weekly show looking into issues of American national security with the host, John Olson. Listen every Wednesday at 9 a.m. for National Security This Week.